Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories. The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable. We have a Patreon, an Amazon booklist, a coffee and an Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you. All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com. And of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. The events that took place in the village of Rode during the year 1860 would seem straight out of Victorian detective fiction. The characters played their roles as the family, the living staff, the day staff, and all with their own lives and their own secrets entwined inside the gated middle-class household of Road House. One of them was guilty of a shocking murder. With little headway made by the local police, detectives were called in from the relatively new detective branch of Scotland Yard. Lauded for their almost superhuman abilities of perception, and mistrusted for their flirtations with practices that many deemed as criminal as their folly, whilst at the same time laying bare the secrets of their suspects for all to see, eroding the highly valued Victorian notion of privacy. With all its twists, turns and bombastic final unravelling, the murder of Roadhill House is the original whodunit. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, welcome to Dark Histories. I'm Ben, as usual. I hope you're all doing really well. hope you've had a great couple of weeks. I'm really excited to get today's episode released to you guys because I I don't want to hype it too much, but I I was researching this and as I was doing it, there were at least three occasions, I think, possibly more, where I found like little tidbits of uh, documents or pieces of information that just stop me in my tracks just kind of pretty much blew my mind and i hope you're all going to really enjoy it before we get to that i want to say thank you to lily angel heidi darthy heather joanne sarah gwen and matt who joined the patreon this week or this month rather so thanks very much guys um it's great to have you on board and thank you to all the patrons and also i would like to say thank you for anthony who bought the book for me from the Dark Histories Wishlist on Amazon, which I used in this episode. And also I used another book in this episode, but the person who bought that didn't leave a, didn't put a message. Um, so I guess thank you to that anonymous person who bought the second book for this episode. So yeah, thank you very much, Anthony and anonymous person. Everything else I've got to say this week can be left to the end because there's going to be some stuff to talk about. So yeah, this is The Road Hill House. Roadhill House was, in many respects, a standard Victorian middle-class home. It certainly had its quirks, not least in the hodgepodge appearance of the grounds, a medley of outbuildings clustered behind limestone walls, gated from the village road that passed in front of the main house. Its day-to-day runnings, whilst chaotic by today's standards, were dominated by a rhythmical, highly regimented schedule. At the head of the household was Mr Samuel Kent, a 59-year-old factory inspector, married to Miss Mary Kent. At 40 years old, she was 19 years his junior and was his second wife. 
The pair had married in 1853, after Samuel's first marriage had left him a widow. The Kents had four children that lived in the house from Samuel's first marriage. Mary Ann, aged 29, Elizabeth, aged 28, Constance, aged 16, and William, aged 14. Both William and Constance were in a boarding school, living away from home during term time and returning only for the holidays. There were also three children from their current marriage, Mary Amelia, aged five, and Francis Savile, aged three, and Evelyn, just one year old. On top of the family, the Kents employed three living servants. 22-year-old Elizabeth Goff was a nursemaid who was employed to take care of the children. Sarah Cox, also 22 years old, was the housemaid who attended the general chores. And 23-year-old Sarah Kerslake was the house cook. From 7am until 7pm, 14-year-old Emily Dole came to the house to assist with nursemaid duties and a further three members of staff came and went daily to take care of the grounds of the house. James Holcomb was the senior member of ground staff. He was 49 years old and took care of the garden along with duties of groom and coachman. He had two assistants, Daniel Oliver, also 49 years old, and John Alloway, 18 years old, who was both the assistant and odd job boy. The family and staff all contributed to the throng of the household which ebbed and flowed with their daily routines. June of 1860 had been the coldest and wettest on record, with over six inches of rainfall. A severe storm had torn up trees on the south coast on the 2nd, and the months previous had seen a prolonged winter stretching well beyond its usual boundaries, threatening this year's summer. William and Constance were home enjoying their summer holiday, having returned home from their schools two weeks prior. Aside from the weather and this injection of lively youth, the house was, in every other respect, plodding along through its usual routines. Daily, the house staff came in the mornings, worked through the day and retired at night after locking the high gate that sat into the walls surrounding the main house and grounds. Samuel Kent had built the walls and erected no trespassing signs after numerous issues with the locals, who he felt strayed too close to the house when trying to fish the river and had, at times, taken to scrumping apples from the house's small orchard. Samuel was not altogether popular in the local area. His job as factory inspector had seen him enforce the law and remove underage children from the local mills. And whilst that might be considered as an act of good by those who looked on, for the families that relied on the labour of their children, it meant the loss of a wage in the household's income. The signs warning those not to trespass did little to endear himself any further, nor his decision to press charges on those that stole his fruit. When laid out in such stark terms, Samuel Kent might come across as miserly, but in reality, he had arrived with his family in road after a difficult period that had seen him hop from several areas, transfer after transfer, after the death of his previous wife and the death of four of his previously born children had caused him to be on the receiving end of a series of vicious rumours and local bad feeling. Samuel's first wife, Mary Ann, had died officially of obstruction of the bowel, though there had been talk of her failing health for a prolonged period before her death, after she had been diagnosed with weakness, bewilderment of intellect and various though harmless delusions. During this period, Mary Ann gave birth to four children, 
all of whom died in succession. The eldest made it only to the age of 15 months. Mary Pratt was promptly employed by the Kents as a governess of the household to take care of the children and the day-to-day affairs of the house. Mrs Pratt took care of both Constance and William after their births, and one year after the death of Mary Ann Kent in 1852, Mrs Pratt became the new Mrs Kent, leading to many rumours of an illicit affair and dark murmurs concerning the death of Samuel's first wife, Mary Ann. There were many who had seen Mrs Pratt centre herself within the household whilst Mary Ann Kent was still alive, and slowly extend her duties to what many perceived to be beyond the duties of simple governess and more akin to those of head of the house. When considering the family's tumultuous past, one can perhaps sympathise to a degree to the premium which Samuel Kent placed on his family's privacy. On Friday the 29th of June, 1860, the Kent's ground staff had arrived as usual along with Emily Dole, the day assistant nursemaid, unlocking the gate and replacing the family's guard dog into its kennel in the yard. It was the last day of John Alloway's employ, having handed in his two weeks' notice a fortnight before when his application for a pay rise was declined by Samuel. The day passed without special excitement or incident, and when nightfall came at 7pm, the day staff filtered out as usual, with James Holcomb, the senior gardener, locking the gates behind them as they left. At 8pm, Elizabeth Goth, the nursemaid, put Francis Savile to bed in the nursery, whilst Mary Amelia was put to bed across the hall in the master bedroom, which she shared with Samuel and Mary Kent. She then ate dinner and after went downstairs to pray with the family. The rest of the household went to bed as the evening drew on. The two eldest daughters, Mary Ann and Elizabeth, shared a bedroom on the third floor, along with both William and Constance, who had their own rooms, next to the servants' room. Samuel and Mary Kent slept in the master bedroom on the second floor, along with Elizabeth Gott, who slept in the nursery opposite. By 10pm, the house was still. The only resident still awake was Samuel, who potted around, letting the guard dog out into the yard, fed him, and checked that all of the house's doors and windows were locked and bolted shut before himself retiring to bed at around 11.30pm. Around 1am, the guard dog barked outside in the garden, though none paid it any mind. The animal was prone to chasing the wind, and a few barks here and there were standard fare. Joe Moon, a local tile maker, heard the dog whilst out fishing, along with policeman Alfred Urge, who was making his way home after his late shift had finished. Neither considered it to be anything unusual. The sun rose at 3.50am on Saturday the 30th of June. The weather, at long last, cast as proving fine. Just one hour later, John Holcomb arrived at the house, unlocked the garden gate that he had locked the previous night, chained the dog up in the kennel and went to work in the stable. At the same time, Elizabeth Goff woke in the nursery and glanced over to the cot in the corner of the room. Francis Savile, known simply as Savile, was not in bed, though his bedclothes had been folded back in place and so she assumed he had already gone to his mother's room across the hall. Recently, Mrs Kent had been a light sleeper due to her late state of pregnancy, and she had often taken Savile to her room to sleep with her if he had awoken in the night. At 6am, Sarah Kerslake and Sarah Cox woke and got up to get to work downstairs. 
Whilst Kerslake went into the kitchen, Cox set about unlocking and unbolting the windows of the house. When she reached the drawing room on the ground floor, however, she noticed that the door had already been unlocked and the middle sash window was opened by around six inches. Assuming someone had been airing the room, she closed it up and continued her morning routine. At 7am, Elizabeth Goth went back to knock on the master bedroom door to collect the children. When Mrs Kent opened the door to her, she asked if the children were awake, only to be greeted by an inquisitive look. The only child that had slept in the room that night had been Mary Amelia, as was the usual arrangement. It dawned on both the mother and the nursemaid that Savile was neither with one or the other. Elizabeth Goth went upstairs to check with the other Kent children to see if they had been with Savile, whilst Mrs Kent told her husband that Savile was missing. After her checks upstairs were ended, with none having seen Savile that morning, panic set in with Elizabeth Goth. She paced downstairs to the kitchen to ask the other servants if any of them had seen the little boy, whilst Mr and Mrs Kent scoured the house. By 7.30am, it was clear that Savile was nowhere to be found inside the house, and with none seeing him, the worst was feared. Samuel Kent alerted the groundsman that he was lost, stolen and carried away, and ordered them to search the garden and grounds, whilst he too joined in the search. He sent John Alloway to alert Alfred Urch, the local village policeman, and his son William to James Morgan, the local baker and parish constable, an unpaid democratic position of authority in rural areas where policemen were potentially lacking in number. Samuel then rode the horse and carriage to Trowbridge, a town five miles to the northeast of Road, to fetch police superintendent John Foley. Alfred Urch and James Morgan arrived in the grounds of Roadhill House at around 8am. Samuel was still out fetching Superintendent Foley at the time, but Elizabeth Goff showed them to the nursery and the pair started their search around the grounds of the house. By now there was a certain element of commotion. Along with the two police already arrived and with Foley on the way, Mrs Kent had sent Constance to fetch Reverend Edward Peacock and he too had joined the search in the grounds. In the small village, Noises had started to travel. Several people walked up to the house to see what was going on, and two, a shoemaker named William Nutt and a farmer named Thomas Benger, decided to drift into the yard and join in with the search. The grounds were largely attached to the right-hand side of the house and were a mix of outbuildings, yards and gardens. The northwest corner was home to the stables and coach house, whilst opposite, in the northeast corner, sat the dog kennel and outbuildings. A courtyard divided the two down the centre and joined onto a large yard, in the southeast of which housed the entrance to a second, smaller yard. Within this yard, an outside toilet stood, surrounded by foliage and bushes. As Nut and Benga scoured the foliage around the toilet, they found a small pool of congealing blood. By steadily looking down, I could see better and saw something like clothing below. I put my hand down and raised the blanket. Benga had found, stuffed into the hole of the outside toilet, the body of four-year-old Savile Kent. He had had his throat cut and there was a large stab wound to his chest. His mouth was bruised. Had it not been for a recently placed shelf in the hole of the toilet, the body would have fallen straight down into the cesspit below and been submerged in the waste. Despite the throat being cut, there was a distinct lack of blood, 
Stephen Millett, a local butcher, estimated there to only be around two tablespoons on the floor, though around a pint and a half had potentially soaked into the blanket the body was wrapped in. Millett also produced a small strip of newspaper that he had found by the outside toilet, which was covered in blood and was, in his opinion, used to clean a knife. Though no one could identify from which paper it came from, it was dated the 9th of June. Benga carried the body of Savile back to the house, and in a flurry of activity, the staff were ordered to keep the news from Mrs. Kent, whilst William was sent to fetch the family's physician, Joshua Parsons, from the local village of Beckington, two miles south of road. Upon his arrival, he inspected the body of Savile and estimated his death to have occurred at least five hours prior, at around 3am. The blanket and the nightdress stained with marks of blood and soil, the throat cut to the bone by some sharp instrument from left to right. It completely divided all the membranes, blood vessels, nerve vessels and air tubes. The mouth of the child has a blackened appearance with the tongue protruding through the teeth. My impression was that the blackened appearance had been produced by forcible pressure on it during life. He also concluded that the wounds had been inflicted by a pointed instrument. It could not have been done by a razor. Samuel Kent went upstairs to his wife, who was having her hair attended by Elizabeth Goff, to tell her the grim news of the discovery. At 10am, Superintendent John Foley arrived at Road House. He inspected the entire house and all the clothing of the residents, but found nothing suspicious. He took note of the bedclothes on Savile's cot, which had been very neatly folded in place after the removal of the child. This, he concluded, must have been done by someone with a practised hand. Upon his inspection of the outside toilet, he found a small sheet of material which, when pulled up, turned out to be a breast flannel, a small square of material with attached ties worn as an undergarment to keep the breast warm and occasionally to enhance one's cleavage. He then ordered for the rest of the cesspit below the hole in the toilet to be drained and searched, though nothing more was found. The rest of the day was busy with the comings and goings of the officials. Eliza Dallimore arrived at the bequest of Foley to strip search the female residents. She found little of interest, though Marianne's nightdress threw up some initial excitement when small bloodstains were found, till they were promptly written off as natural stains from her menstrual cycle. As night fell over the Roadhill house, suspicion quickly followed. All the officials who had attended the ongoing investigations that day had concluded, whether they had made it public or not, that they believed the murderer to be an inhabitant of the household, and that the villagers too had come to the same ends. When the story hit the papers on the following Monday, they too wasted no time in voicing the suggestion. Though the story was relegated to a small few pieces, the story concluded in the evening standard that From the manner in which the child was taken away and murdered, it is the general opinion that the deed was done by some inmate of the house. The inquest for the murder of Francis Savile Kent was swiftly arranged and carried out on Monday the 2nd of July in the Red Lion Inn, a small pub in the village. Before the proceedings could even start, it became quickly evident that the premises was far too small a venue for the interest the case had garnered, and so the entire affair was moved further up the road to Temperance Hall, which was just as quickly filled with onlookers keen to see proceedings. The jury consisted of ten local men, 
the landlord of the Red Lion Inn, a butcher, two farmers, a shoemaker, stonemason, millwright and registrar. It was a relatively breezy affair. The jury saw the body and the premises, including the outside toilet, and then saw testimony given by Susan Cox, who gave evidence of the house being locked up the night before, and Elizabeth Goff, who spoke of putting Savile to bed as per usual and finding nothing out of the ordinary on the night of his murder. She spoke of how he was then well and in unusually good spirits. She explained that the door to the nursery opened very softly without noise and that the entire room was carpeted. She mentioned that Savile had not been to bed at all during the day of the murderer and so he slept all the sounder. Nut, Benger and Millet all gave evidence, with the latter producing the piece of bloodstained newspaper, followed by the physician Parsons, who gave his medical opinion on the cause of death. When the coroner asked the jury if they required more evidence, they voiced their wishes to speak with the Kent children, William and Constance. The inquiry had initially avoided bringing the direct family into the ordeal, but the coroner allowed the jury to question Constance and William in their house so as not to expose them to insult. The interviews of each child lasted no more than four minutes, and both gave statements that they had slept all night, had not known anything about the murder until the morning of the discovery of the body, and knew no one that held any ill will towards the young child. After five hours, the inquiry was wrapped up, with the jury returning a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. On the same morning of the inquiry, Miss Holly, the Kent's laundry lady, came to the road house to collect the week's laundry. It had been arranged into baskets earlier that morning with a corresponding notebook detailing the items and garments that were to be handed over. When she returned home, however, she found that a nightdress belonging to Constance was missing from the baskets, though included in the notebook. On the following day, when the police visited her to ask her about the breast flannel, she told them that she had not seen it before and that nothing was unusual about this week's laundry from the Kent household. As soon as the police left, she sent her daughter up to the house to tell Samuel Kent that she had found Constance's nightdress to be missing, but had concealed it from the police. She later visited the house herself, and Samuel Kent told her, in no short terms, that she must find it immediately, or he would elevate matters with the authorities. On Friday the 6th of July, Francis Savile Kent was buried in the family vault in East Coulston, 10 miles east of Road. As the funeral procession passed out of the gates of Road Hill House, no one was still any the wiser as to who had committed the crime, only a suspicion that it had been someone who lived in the house and still lived there, in all likelihood completely unknown to those around them. The investigation continued, but with the funeral over, there was dying hope that much would be uncovered amongst the locals. Eliza Dallimore returned with the breast flannel that Foley had found freshly cleaned. Her purpose of bringing it to the house was to test fit it on the three staff members, though she did not test it on any of the Kent daughters. It was ill-fitting on both Sarah Cox and Sarah Kerslake, however, it fit the nursemaid Elizabeth Goff perfectly. Dallimore left the house to report her findings, and Elizabeth Goff, already high up on the list of suspects, found herself under a new scrutiny. A week after the initial inquiry had concluded, the Wiltshire magistrates opened a new inquiry, this time under a veil of some secrecy, that it was once again held in the public space of Temperance Hall. 
Several of the roadhouse inhabitants were called to give testimony. Mrs. Kent herself told them that she believed the culprit was someone who knew the premises and an inmate of the house, though she was fairly convinced that it was not Miss Goff. The police disagreed. In their minds, they were finding it hard to believe that she could have remained asleep while someone had crept into the room and spirited away Savile right from under her nose. They had, in fact, been busy speculating and drawing up their own theory of events. In short, they suspected that Elizabeth Goff had had a secret lover in her bed that night and that Savile had awoken suddenly and witnessed the goings-on. In order to keep the child quiet, they believed Elizabeth and the mystery lover had stuffed a blanket into Savile's mouth, suffocating him, and then mutilated his body in order to disguise the cause of death. Naturally, they had also speculated on the identity of the lover, and the number one spot belonged to Samuel Kent. He had past history of affairs with his staff. He had, after all, been rumoured to have had a long affair with the current Mrs. Kent, whilst his first wife's health slowly deteriorated. Furthermore, he had rode off in a hurry on the morning of the discovery, supposedly, he said, to fetch Inspector Foley, but this, they surmised, would have given him ample opportunity to dump any evidence that he may have needed to conceal. It was pure speculation, with the only evidence being that the breast flannel had roughly fitted Miss Goff, but it wasn't an uncommon theory. Many people in the village had gossiped as much, including the rumour that the nursemaid had given a confession to the police implicating Samuel as an accessory to the fact. Regardless of the lack of evidence, Elizabeth Goff was apprehended at Road House on Tuesday the 10th of July and taken to the station. Meanwhile, the local papers were making much of a story involving Constance and William Kent, who three years before the murder had attempted to run away from home and sail out to sea. Constance had cut her hair and disguised herself in boys' clothing to pass herself off as a boy, and the pair had made tracks for Bristol. In the process, Constance had dumped her own clothing and the offcuts from her hair down the hole in the outside toilet, just as the body of Savile had been dumped after his murder. This linking of crimes may have seemed tenuous at best, but it showed the lack of solid leads that the police actually had to work with, and how little the papers had to write about. On the same day that Elizabeth Goff was arrested, the Morning Post wrote an editorial akin to a rallying cry for something to be done about the case that had been such an affront to quiet, middle-class life. Every Englishman is accustomed to pride himself with more than usual complacency upon what is called the sanctity of an English home. It is with this innate feeling of security that every Englishman feels a strong sense of the inviolability of his own house. It is this that converts the Moorside cottage into a castle. The moral sanctions of an English home are, in the 19th century, what the moat and the keep and the drawbridge were in the 14th. In the strength of these, we lie down to sleep at night and leave our homes in the day, feeling that a whole neighbourhood would be raised, nay, the whole country, were any attempt made to violate what so many traditions and such long custom have rendered sacred. The piece then goes on to briefly outline the murder of Savile Kent before its larger appeal. Without intending any disrespect to the coroner or his jury, we take the liberty of saying that the circumstances demand a much more searching investigation than they have received at the hands of these functionaries. The Secretary of State must take it up, and the case must be sifted by a commission under his authority. 
As far as we can understand the story, it seems that the house was thoroughly closed up on the night preceding the murder. In the morning, the house was partly open, but it does not appear to have been opened by violence from without. Therefore, the inference is plain that the secret lies with someone who was within. The piece goes on to question and suggest motives for almost all members of the Kent household, as well as the staff. In fact, it quite literally states that the murder was either a man, a woman, or one of the big children. The matter, it declared, should never be allowed to rest until the last shadow of this dark mystery be chased away. The security of families and the sacredness of English households demanded for it. For all its flamboyance, the piece got its wish, as the local magistrates requested Scotland Yard to send a detective to aid in the case's investigation, and it was promptly granted. On the 14th of July, Detective Jack Witcher stepped onto the platform in Paddington Station to catch a train to Wiltshire to take on Roadhill House. Jonathan Jack Witcher was born in Camberwell, London, on the 1st of October 1814. His father, Richard, had worked as a gardener and he lived with both his parents, along with his older brother and sister, James and Eliza, and his younger sister, Sarah. The family lived in a terraced house in a somewhat sketchy end of Camberwell. After he left school, he worked as a labourer before, at 22 years old, he joined the London Metropolitan Police in 1837. The Metropolitan Police, or the Met, was a mere eight years old at the time of his joining, forming in 1829 with a total of 3,500 officers. All the single officers lived in a station house together, and so too did Witcher, sharing his new home with 16 other officers. He quickly stuck out to his senior officers and was drafted into a small corps of plainclothes officers that worked undercover. The group were a prototype of sorts of what was to be established as the detective officer. In 1842, the Home Office set up the first detective agency, consisting of eight officers, including Witcher. They were to work in plain clothes and to stalk through the common people, unsighted and unsuspected, to capture their suspects. The public and the press, though initially suspicious of the tactics of espionage which they deemed as somewhat underhand, soon began to change their mind when the rise of the Victorian detective novel changed the low opinion and elevated the detective to a much higher level. In some cases, detectives were described as almost superhuman, with their abilities of perception and deduction. Authors like Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens and Thomas de Quincey wrote of detective protagonists with superior traits of rationalism, scientific method, pragmatism and a quiet stroke of mistrust and mystery that turned them into the poster child for the modern police in the Victorian age. Amongst this social shaping of the detective, Witcher arrived in Road to both acclaim and suspicion and no doubt not a small touch of jealousy and resentment from the local law enforcement. The local feeling towards the Kent family had equally soured since the murder of Saville, and by the time that Witcher arrived, it had reached a low point in the case. There is a very strong feeling amongst the lower class of inhabitants in the village against Mr Kent's family, as well as against himself, and none of them can scarcely walk in the village without being insulted. As Witcher sat down in Temperance Hall to watch the conclusion of the low-key inquiry, 
which saw Elizabeth Goff set free after no evidence could be found to send her for trial for the murder. The atmosphere in the village towards both the Kent family and Witcher himself was not one of welcoming, friendly warmth. The inquiry was adjourned until the 20th of July and a £200 reward was publicly offered for information that would lead to the capture of the killer and any accomplice that would hand in the killer was assured that they would be given pardon and protection. Witcher took a tour of the Roadhill house on the afternoon of his arrival and had the crime scene reconstructed and explained as they were found two weeks prior on the morning of the discovery of Samuel's body. He ran experiments attempting to recreate removing the child from his cot and found quickly that the bloodied scrap of newspaper found in the outside toilet by Millet was in fact from the Times, a paper that Samuel Kent subscribed to and received daily. He concluded that the drawing room sash window that had been cracked open was insignificant. For him, it made far more sense for the killer to have exited through the back of the house, away from any potential witnesses glancing out through the front windows. He theorised that instead that they had exited through the kitchen door and walked a much shorter distance to the outside toilet than if they had gone out through the drawing room, committed the murder and then returned along the same route, relocking and bolting the doors as they went. The sash window, he surmised, was very possibly a red herring set up to make it seem as though someone from outside the household had stolen away Savile. Witcher then questioned all the members of the household, along with the Kent children. In particular, he made a point of asking Constance where her missing nightdress was that had been lost in the laundry, along with confiscating her remaining two nightdresses. The failure of the missing nightdress to materialise, he decided, was his first lead. The next day, Witcher made several appointments outside of the village and wider area. He visited Constance's school and met with several of her school friends for questioning. The detective had been busy forming his own theory and it was radically different to the popular opinion in the village that Mrs. Goff had killed the children to conceal an affair. Instead, Witcher believed that someone in the house had taken Savile in the dead of the night carried him through the house and out into the yard, through the kitchen, unlocking the doors as they went. When they reached the toilet, they suffocated the child and dumped him into the cesspit below. However, upon realising that the newly installed shelf had blocked the child from disappearing from review and drowning in the foul water below, they had returned to the kitchen, collected a knife from the basket by the back door, killed him outright, cleaned the knife on a strip of newspaper and then backtracked replacing the knife and locking the doors as they went. On their way, they opened the drawing room window to insinuate a kidnapping and then quietly returned to bed. But which member of the household was it that could fit this theory? He put the breast flannel on display in Temperance Hall and asked villagers to attempt to identify it, though truth be told, he wasn't convinced that it was relevant to the murderer at all and could just as easily have been put there as another red herring or was even just simply unrelated. During his inquiries, he observed the inhabitants of the household closely. On Wednesday the 18th of July, 1,000 flyers were distributed, advertising £200 reward for information, and once again, Witcher went further afield, this time to Bristol and Bath, to follow up on the story involving Constant and William's attempts to run away three years prior. He also spoke to another school friend of Constance, Emma Moody, 
who told him that Constance had often complained about her home life to her and how she believed the children of Samuel Kent's first marriage were treated unfairly compared to the new children. Richard, who had come to suspect Constance, was now developing a motive in his mind. He was beginning to create a scenario that saw Constance kill through jealousy or spite. Her mind, he decided, was somewhat affected by madness, as evidenced by her plot to run away, and to the Victorian mindset that her mother's poor mental health meant that she was automatically tarred as being susceptible to madness herself. He surmised that due to her mother's poor health, she had been brought up by her mother-in-law to be, the then maid, Mrs. Pratt. But once her father and Mrs. Pratt were married, one year after her mother's death, and the new children were born, she felt replaced, cast aside and treated poorly by the maid that had once treated her as her own. The fact that William and Constance Kent had run away previously, and Constance had dumped her clothing and hair into the outside toilet, showed that she had been capable of making complicated plans, and was somewhat devious, and that the outside toilet was perhaps a repetition of this earlier indiscretion. He also suspected William somewhat, though less so, and considered that he either helped Constance with the crime, or was in the least a confidant to the deed. Meanwhile, Samuel Kent was adamant that none in the household had committed the crime. The house had been empty for two years prior to his moving in, and people who skulked about in the empty house. This, he told police, meant that the layout of the interior of his house was not quite as private as one might think. He then directed the police to the house's cockloft on the top floor and two small anterooms on the ground floor, all of which, he told police, could have acted very well as hiding place for an outsider to wait until nightfall. Both were shot down by police, however, when spider webs were noted to have covered the doorway of the cockloft and that the anterooms held no notion of being unoccupied. These instances by Samuel may have been his real thoughts, or were possibly just an attempt to draw the fire away from himself and his family from the local villages. More darkly, they could also have been seen as a way to obfuscate and obstruct the police inquiries. Rumours were growing darker by the day, and by now, people were sending whispers through the village that Samuel may possibly have killed his first wife in order to marry his maid, Mrs. Pratt. Perhaps his first wife hadn't been mad at all. What if she'd been poisoned? And what of the four dead children from the first marriage? The Kemp family were, by now, seeing their privacy violated from all angles. The myriad rumours were damaging their reputation and ability to carry on as normal in the village, and the local papers were reopening old wounds with talk of Samuel's first marriage. All the while, the press justified this pointing of fingers and rumour fueling speculation as a service to the excited locality, who had a right to the amplest details which the journalist can supply. This, according to the Bath Chronicle, extended to a journalist passing himself off as a detective in order to gain entry to the house and grounds of Road House in order to make a floor plan that was duly printed in the paper. At this point in the investigation, there were very few new details and so speculation made the bulk of the reporting and insinuations were made upon who the murderer may have been with Mrs. Goff, Samuel Kent and Constance all standing in the brightest glow of the spotlight. On Friday the 20th of July, the inquiry was resumed and Witcher gave the details of investigation so far to the magistrates. He concluded that he thought Constance Kent to be the guilty party. 
the magistrates went along with Witcher, who told him to make his arrest. Witcher himself wasn't overly keen to make such a bold move just yet. The feeling of the local police was against his own theory, and he feared there may be repercussions. But the magistrates reiterated that whilst on the case, he held the ultimate authority, and if that he felt Constance to be guilty, then the arrest should be carried out. At 3pm, Witcher visited Roadhill House and took Constance into custody. I am a police officer and I hold a warrant for your apprehension, charging you with the murder of your brother, Francis Savile Kent, which I will read to you. I then read the warrant to her and she commenced crying and said, I am innocent, which she repeated several times. I then accompanied her to her bedroom, where she put on her bonnet and mantle and brought her to this place. She made no further remark to me. I now ask for a remand for a few days and on the next occasion I shall be able to show the animus existing between the prisoner and the deceased and in the meantime to search for the missing bedgown which, if in existence, may possibly be found. A remand to Wednesday or Thursday next, I think, will be ample time. The magistrate granted remand until the following Friday and ordered Constance to be taken to a cell in a prison in Devizes. 16 miles east of road. When asked if she had anything to say to the matter, Constance remained silent. With only a week for Witcher to build a case against Constance Kent with enough evidence to ensure that she be sent to criminal trial, things needed to happen fast for the detective. He was acutely aware that the evidence upon which he had made the arrest was flimsy at best. The missing nightgown was half a clue but almost all the other evidence was purely circumstantial at best and hearsay at worst. The house was once again searched in an effort to find the missing nightdress, which once again turned up no results. He sent a telegram to Scotland Yard, asking for assistance on the case. I have this day apprehended on a warrant Constance Kent, the third daughter who is remanded for a week. The magistrates have left the case entirely in my hands to get out the evidence. I am awkwardly situated and want assistance. Pray send down Sergeant Williamson or Tanner. Upon receiving the request, Sergeant Frederick Adolphus Williamson was immediately dispatched to assist Witcher, arriving the next afternoon by train from London. In the morning, Witcher once again travelled outside road to meet with more of Constance's school friends and in the afternoon briefed the press on his lines of inquiry, which he said, was a motive of jealousy and the history of madness that ran in her family. In his report to Scotland Yard, Witcher explained further that his case rested on the missing nightdress and the testimony of Constance's school friends. He believed that the attack having taken place so soon after Constance's return from school, the fact that Constance and William were the only members of the house to sleep alone and that she had used the outside toilet before as a dumping ground, and that she was strong enough to have played out the murder both physically and mentally, all pointed to her being the strongest suspect. He also spoke of the trouble he had had with the local police throughout the case, which he attributed to jealousy of his position, and that their own theory, that the murderers had been Elizabeth Goff and Samuel Kent, differed from his own. Witcher himself dismissed the local police's theory, and in almost all cases, said there were innocent explanations for all of Samuel's behaviours that the local police had found suspicious, such as his haste to leave so early in the morning of the discovery of Savile's body to fetch Inspector Foley and his insistence that the murderer was from outside the household. 
getting somewhat desperate, Witcher posted a notice on the door of Temperance Hall, offering a £5 reward to anyone who could bring him the missing nightdress. He then served a subpoena to Emma Moody, Constance's school friend, and then returned to Roadhill House to once again search the grounds with Williamson. He also questioned Sarah Cox, the housemaid, concerning the laundry on the morning that Constance's nightdress was discovered as missing. She told him that after she had packed the laundry baskets for collection and filled out the laundry book, Constance had entered and asked her to check the pocket of her slip to see if she had left her purse in the pocket. The housemaid turned out the baskets and checked the slip but found no purse. Afterwards, Constance asked her if she would fetch her a glass of water. When I returned with the glass of water, I found her where I left her. I don't think I was gone a minute. Sarah Cox played down the time that Constance was left alone in the room with the laundry, but to Witcher, this was the information that he'd been looking for. He now had a theory which fit the missing nightdress, exactly as he had hoped. He believed that Constance, needing to destroy or dump the nightdress that she had worn on the night of the murder, had sent her two clean nightdresses down with the laundry, and then, after they had been recorded and witnessed by another member of the house, she removed one of the clean nightdresses to hold in her own possession. Once the nightdress was found missing by the laundry woman, Constance would then still have two nightdresses in her possession. Both, however, would be perfectly clean of any excess bloodstains, whilst the third, presumably heinously stained nightdress, could safely be destroyed without any further suspicion. It was an ingenious sleight-of-hand trick that showed calculation and acute cunning and it was exactly what Witcher needed to flesh out his theory. Though he was yet to hold any real solid evidence, he still had the hope of a confession from Constance. At 11am, Friday the 27th of July, the inquiry once again commenced in Temperance Hall. In a last-ditch effort to gain solid evidence, Witcher had a gang of workmen dismantle the outside toilet to drain the cesspit, though he still found nothing. The first witness to the stand was Elizabeth Goff, who gave evidence concerning Constance, but stated that, During the whole of the time that I had been in Mr Kent's service, I have never heard Miss Constance say anything unkind toward the little boy that is dead. When Constance's school friends were called to the stand, they spoke only of a few instances of immature jealousy, but all stated, along with the servants of the house, that Constance never showed any special dislike towards Savile and that on the morning of the body's discovery, she had shown no signs of anything unusual. Witcher's theory concerning the nightdress failed to be conveyed to the jury, and at the end of the day, Mr Peter Edlin, the barrister employed to represent Constance, gave a prolonged speech to the inquiry in which he blasted Witcher for his conduct in arresting Constance. There was not a tittle of evidence against her, not one word on which the finger of infamy could be pointed against her, Although a most atrocious murder has been committed, it had been followed by a judicial murder no less atrocious. If the murderer were never discovered, it would never be forgotten that this young lady had been dragged like a common felon to Device's jail. That fact alone was quite sufficient to ensure the sympathy of every man in the country and the kingdom. The steps which had been taken must blast her hopes and prospects for life and those steps had been taken solely on the suspicion of an inspector of the police acting under the influence of the reward for which she had been offered. 
the fact respecting the missing bedgown had been cleared up to the satisfaction of everyone who had heard the evidence that day, and no doubt could remain that this little peg upon which this fearful charge had been grounded had fallen to the ground. He asked the magistrates, therefore, to pause and say whether for one moment longer this young lady should be kept in custody. Without reproaching Inspector Witcher for what he had done, he must say that the hunting up the schoolfellows of Miss Constance Kent's reflected ineffable disgrace upon those who had the means of bringing them there. Nothing had been elicited from these young ladies, showed anything like animus on the part of the prisoner towards the deceased child, nor had any motive been established which would induce the prisoner to imbrue her hands in the blood of the poor child. A more unjust, a more improper, a more improbable case having regard to the facts elicited in evidence was never brought before any court of justice in any place, as far as I know, upon a charge of this serious nature, and seeking, as it does, to fix that charge upon a young lady in the position of life as Miss Constance Kent. Following Edlin's impassioned speech, which was interspersed with applause from the audience, the jury quickly came to the conclusion that the case against Constance was not enough to see her stand trial, and she was immediately liberated and ordered free, on condition that she would appear in court again at a later date if required. Witcher wrote a lengthy report, angry at the way his theories concerning the nightdress had been represented to the jury, and how the questioning of the school friends had been undertaken. The next day, he and Williamson left Rowe to return to London. After Constance was released and the detectives returned to London, a void opened up in the case of the Roadhill murder and the press duly filled it with letters from around the country from citizens espousing their various theories as to who the murderer was and how they had committed the act. These communications ranged from the rational to the utterly bizarre, including one person told of how he had seen everything unfold in a dream and was sure that he could point to the murderer, suggesting the police contact him if they need further assistance. Witcher also received the same mail and it fell within his remit to trawl through them all in case of any solid evidence showing up in any of them. Time and time again, he read the letters, writing them off and filing them away. Suspicion fell largely upon any and all of the inmates of the house and many people outside of it too fell under suspicion at times. Witcher came under harsh criticism for his role in the case so far. An editorial in the Devices and Wiltshire Gazette wrote with an element of fury concerning both Witcher and the role of detectives in general. The accuser brought forward his charge under serious responsibility. He was bound, if not actually to prove it, at least to make out so strong a case of presumptive guilt as to justify his own proceedings and to show the necessity of sending the prisoner to be tried by a jury. If he failed to do this, then he made himself liable to censure of the severest kind. Were it otherwise, what would become of that liberty, the enjoyment of which is the preeminent boast of every British subject? If officers of the law, prompted by professional emulation and the desire and the desire of distinguishing themselves, or, what is worse, excited by the scent of blood money, are to be allowed with impunity to bring forward baseless and reckless accusations, who among us can call himself safe? We do not believe that there is a single human being besides Mr. Witcher who would think it sufficient to detain her in custody for a minute, whether the conduct of the official or officious police officer Mr. Witcher 
will draw upon him the merited censure of his superiors we know not, but this is not the only case which has shown that some check ought to be placed on the conduct of what is called the detective police, who are not infrequently permitted to violate the sanctity of domestic life in a manner scarcely consistent with English security and freedom. In the present instance, moreover, there was no occasion whatever for calling in the assistance of a metropolitan functionary. Our own excellent police have, at all times, shown themselves entirely competent to their duties, and the event in this case has shown that the ends of justice would have been much better answered if they had not been interfered with. Far from the superhuman figures romanticised in fiction, detectives were now finding themselves under heavy scrutiny. Villains and crooks, whose fodder was every innocent citizen of the country. It was quite a turnabout face. Meanwhile, back in road, the police were struggling with where to turn next in the murder case. In early August, they ordered for the exhumation of Savile's body in the hopes that they might find some piece of evidence stashed in the coffin, but nothing was found. The house remained under surveillance, and searches of the toilet cesspit were once again conducted to no avail. On the 27th of August, Elizabeth Goff, the nursemaid, left the employ of the Kent family to return to her own home and work in her family's bakery. The magistrates requested for the Home Secretary to conduct further investigations and they employed a solicitor, Mr Slack, to conduct an investigation to be carried out in secret. He concluded his investigation, declaring Constance to be innocent. However, he suggested Elizabeth Goff to be arrested, which was done But later, a magistrate's court promptly found no evidence with which she could be sent to trial and she was quickly released. A rather peculiar magistrate, Thomas Saunders from Bradford-upon-Avon, took it upon himself to open his own inquiry upon the case, throughout which he dragged up several tired lines of questioning, the whole time drinking brandy from a hip flask. Proceedings appeared to open and close upon his whim and he routinely forgot witness names. The Morning Star newspaper called him a crack-brained boggler and a barrister who wrote to him personally called him an ill-conditioning, meddling, vain old idiot. Saunders' inquiry, however, wasn't entirely played out in farce. After hearing testimony from Superintendent Foley, Police Constable Alfred Urch and Sergeant James Watts, the courtroom heard that the police had found what they believed to be a shift or undershirt wrapped in newspaper and stuffed in the boiler hole in the kitchen the day after the murder. Alfred Urch told the court, It was dry, but very dirty, as if it had been worn a long time. It had some blood about it. It was dry then, but I should not think the stains had been on it very long time. Some of the blood was on the front and some on the back. I wrapped up the shift again, and as I was coming out, I saw Mr Kent just outside the stable in the yard. He asked what I had found and said he must have it seen and that Dr. Parsons must see it. I did not let Mr. Kent see it, but handed it over to Foley. Foley said that he believed the blood was menstrual blood and therefore irrelevant to the investigation. He presumed that the shirt had been hidden by some member of the household in shame and did not want to further embarrass them by bringing it to light. This was all new information and of course would have held great interest to Witcher. In November, Samuel Kent was given a leave of absence from his workplace. His job had become untenable in the light of the case as he found the abuse he received made his work impossible. During this period, 
things finally started to quiet down surrounding the Roadhill case. On the 1st December, a further inquiry was held on account of the bloody undershirt, but it amounted to little but quietly slapped wrists on the part of Superintendent Foley. In 1861, a further inquiry was turned down, and in April, the Kent family left the village of Road for good. Constance was sent to a finishing school in France, and William returned to his boarding school. Samuel was transferred to Wales, and so the family moved, with the promise of being able to start a quieter life, away from the heckling and abuse. Constance, however, was struggling at school, suffering from bullying, and so Samuel removed her and instead sent her to a convent in the same French town. In 1863, she returned to England and became a paying boarder in St Mary's Home, Brighton, a Church of England convent, under the name of Emily Kent. In 1864, Detective Jonathan Witcher retired from the police force. On his papers, his reason for taking early retirement was cited as congestion of the brain, or what might commonly be called work-based stress in a more modern lexicon. Here the story of Roadhill House might have ended in mystery. After five years, the story had fallen off the back pages of newspapers and into the hazy recollections of the past for most people. But there was still one final twist to come. On Tuesday the 25th of April 1865, Constance Kent, now 21 years old, walked into Bow Street Magistrates Court in London, flanked by Reverend Wagner and Catherine Green, the Lady Superior of her convent. She approached the clerk and told him calmly that she wished to confess to a murder. She handed over a letter written in her own hand that read, I, Constance Emily Kent, alone and unaided on the night of the 29th of June, 1860, murdered at Roadhill House, Wiltshire, one Francis Savile Kent. Before the deed, none knew of my intention, nor after of my guilt. No one assisted me in the crime, nor in my evasion of discovery. The clerk stared down at the paper and then back to Constance. He asked her several times if she was aware of the severity of the crime to which she was confessing and if she truly wished to confess such a thing. After she calmly reassured him over and over, he finally asked her if she wished to sign the statement, which she then did and was promptly arrested. She had given confession to Reverend Wagner two weeks prior and confessed her guilt in the crime and further she had told him that she had wanted to take it public, confess to the police. Wagner insisted that he never pressed her to confess officially to the police, and indeed, during the trial that soon followed, held fast to his duty as a reverend not to disclose any of the information that she had confessed to him in church. Due to the crime being in Wiltshire, Constance had to attend the courts in that county, so the same evening she was escorted by train by Detective Williamson. Her inquiry was a short affair. The same old witnesses were trotted out to repeat the same testimonies as they had done so many times five years prior. However, due to Constance's admission of guilt, it was all somewhat cursory and a matter of ceremony. The trial closed at 6pm, committing Constance to stand trial three months later in July. All the while, the newspapers had trouble believing her confession. Many blamed insanity and some even floated the idea that she was insane, but not pleading insanity to help her brother, who, coming from the same family, would have suffered from such a plea. When a doctor visited her in prison, however, 
He promptly diagnosed her sane. Her only peculiarity, he wrote, was her extreme calmness, the utter absence of any symptom of emotion. Constance's trial commenced on the 21st of July, 1865, five years after the body of Savile had initially been discovered. Due to her guilty plea, it was a swift affair. Mr Coleridge, her representative, gave a speech on her behalf. I desire to say two things before your lordship passes sentence. First, solemnly, in presence of Almighty God, as a person who values her own soul, she desires me to say that the guilt is hers alone, that her father and others who have long suffered most unjust and cruel suspicions are wholly and absolutely innocent. Next, she desires me to say that she was not driven to the fact, as has been asserted, by any unkind treatment of her mother-in-law. She met with nothing at home but tender, forbearing love. I hope I may add, my lord, not improperly, that it gives me a melancholy pleasure to be made the organ of these statements, because on my honour, I believe them to be true. The judge, in a black cap, passed his sentence. Constance Emily Kent, you have pleaded guilty to an indictment charging you with the willful murder of your brother, Francis Savile Kent, on the 30th of June, 1860. It is my duty to receive that plea which you have deliberately put forward, and it is a satisfaction to know that it was not pleaded until after hearing the advice of counsel, who would have freed you from this dreadful charge if you could have been freed therefrom. I can entertain no doubt, after having read the evidence in the depositions, and considering it is your third confession of the crime, that your plea was the plea of an originally guilty person. The murder was one committed under circumstances of great deliberation and cruelty. You appear to have allowed a feeling of jealousy. At this point, Constance blurted out her only clear words throughout the whole trial, when she shouted, Not jealousy. The judge then continued, To work in your breast until at least assumed over you the influence of power of the evil one. The judge then began to show his emotion, and openly wept as he passed down a death sentence of hanging. In the aftermath of the trial, the newspapers were quick to jump on the peculiarity of the conclusion of the case. Many appeared to sympathise with Constance, and the feeling was one of a deep melancholy. There were enthusiastic calls for her death sentence to be lowered, and on the 27th of July, Queen Victoria gave her pardon, committing her instead to life in prison, a sentence which typically ran for 20 years. Prior to her confession in the Bow Street Magistrates, Constance had written a letter which was eventually forwarded to the Kent family solicitor to help prepare her defence. As no defence was required, given that she had pleaded guilty, it was never read in court. The letter detailed Constance's motive for the crime. The murder that I committed to avenge my mother, whose place had been usurped by my stepmother, the latter having been living in the family ever since my birth. She treated me with all the kindness and affection of a mother, for my own mother never loved nor cared for me, and I loved her as though she had been. When no more than three years old, I began to observe that my mother held quite a secondary place, both as a wife and as a mistress of the house. She it was who really ruled. Many conversations on the subject, which I was considered too young to understand, 
I overheard and remembered in the after years. At that time, I always took part against my mother, whom, being spoken of with contempt, I too despised. As I grew older and understood that my father loved her and treated my mother with indifference, my opinion began to alter. I felt a secret dislike to her when she spoke scornfully or disparagingly of my mother. Mama died. From that time, my love turned to the most bitter hatred. Even after her death, she continued to speak of her with scorn. At such times, my hatred grew so intense that I could not remain in the room. I vowed a deadly vengeance, renounced all belief in religion, and devoted myself body and soul to the evil spirit, invoking his aid in my scheme of revenge. At first I thought of murdering her, but that seemed to me too short a pang. I would have her feel my revenge. She had robbed my mother of the affection which was her due, so I would rob her of what she most loved. From that time I became a demon, always seeking to do evil and to lead others into it, ever trying to find an occasion to accomplish my evil design. I found it. Nearly five years have since passed away during which time I have either been in a wild, feverish state of mind, only happy in doing evil, or else so very wretched that I often could have put an end to myself had means been near at the moment. I felt hatred towards everyone and held a wish to make them as wretched as myself. At last a change came. My conscience tormented me with remorse. Miserable, wretched, suspicious, I felt as though hell were in me. Then I resolved to confess. I am now ready to make what recitation is in my power. A life for a life's all that I can give, as the evil done can never be repaired. I had no mercy, let none ask it for me. Though indeed, all must regard me with too much horror. Forgiveness from those I have so deeply injured, I dared not ask. I hated, so is their hatred my just retribution. The letter was a telling document, and though it never came to light at the time of the trial, a second letter, written by Dr Bucknell, who had spent considerable time with Constance while she awaited trial, was published by the press shortly after her sentence was passed, and it detailed how the murder was carried out. A few days before the murder, she had stolen a razor from her father's wardrobe which she planned to use for the crime, along with a candle and a pack of matches which she placed in the corner of the outside toilet in the garden. On the night of the murder, just after midnight, Constance got up from bed, went to the drawing room and opened the door and sash window and then returned to the nursery to collect Savile. Once in the drawing room, she put on her galoshes climbed out of the window and took the child to the toilet, lit the candle and while Savile was still sleeping, cut his throat with the razor. Unsure if he was dead or not, she inflicted the chest wound with the same razor and then dropped the body into what she thought would be the cesspit below the toilet, though unbeknown to her was simply a small shell. She then returned to her room, washed out two small patches of blood from her nightdress and put the discoloured water into a basin by her bed which she used to clean her feet at night. After the dress had dried and still seeing bloodstains on it, she burnt the nightdress in her bedroom and put the ashes into the kitchen grate. She cleaned the razor and replaced it in her father's case and stole the nightdress out of the laundry basket just as Witcher had presumed. As it turned out, 
The bloody garment found stuffed in the boiler hole of the kitchen had no connection to the case whatsoever. Dr. Bucknell concluded the letter, stating that he did not think Constance insane. She simply had a peculiar disposition, and even as a child, a great determination of character. This suggested to him that, for good or evil, her future life would be remarkable. Even after the letter was made public, detailing the cold and violent crime, the press still printed stories doubting the veracity of all the claims. It seemed to not all add up as neatly as they would have liked. Questions were posed such as how she had killed the child with a razor, despite the doctor who had undertaken the post-mortem, saying specifically that the wounds could not have been done with such a tool. Why was there not more blood on her clothing? And how had she folded the bedclothes in Savile's cot whilst holding the four-year-old in her arms? We are but little enlightened. The crime seems not to diminish in perplexity and strangeness as it is unravelled step by step. One month after her confession, William Kent turned 21 and received his share of his mother's inheritance. As Constance lived out the next 20 years in prison, William went on to become a zoologist in the British Museum and eventually a marine biologist in Brighton Aquarium, where he published several books on marine life. Witcher died in 1881, aged 66 years old. Despite several appeals for early release, Constance served every last day of her 20-year sentence and was released on the 18th of July, 1885. Upon her release, she was taken in by Reverend Wagner in Brighton, where she reported monthly to the Brighton Police Station. Though one year later, she sailed to Tasmania with her brother William and her half-sisters Evelyn and Florence under her new name of Emily Kay. She skipped around in Tasmania and Australia, training as a nurse, working in a leper colony and as a matron in a home for young offenders. In 1911, she opened a nursing home near Sydney which she ran until her retirement in 1935. In 1944, she turned 100 years old and received her congratulatory letter from the King and Queen and was even pictured in the local newspaper. Two months later, she passed away. It was said that she remained active and mentally aware right up to her death. The case of the Roadhill murder is at times utterly bizarre, whilst to others coldly rational. As the press reported, it truly did become almost more complicated and more obscure the more facts were divulged. The questions as to who, how and why still remain largely unanswered in many meaningful ways. Was it really Constance or was her confession a cover-up for someone else? If she was the murderer, was she really acting alone as she had said and had no other member any knowledge whatsoever? It all seems a little unlikely and whilst many of the dots connect, they end up forming only loose structures of the entire picture. One thing is certain, however, and that is that with all its winding twists and turns, it is a case where the facts truly, truly were worse than fiction. Constance Kent, ladies and gentlemen, my life. Uh, I, I, I know what happened in this. I've spent the last days researching and writing this. And still now, having just finished reading my script right now, again, I am just left somewhat 
flabbergasted by it all. So we're going to come back and chat by about a few things um, after these short advert breaks. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible, which is really great. I'm actually a member of Audible myself, so I'm really glad to bring in an advertiser that you know I actually do rate. For those that are not aware, Audible is an audiobook subscription service whereby you pay a monthly sub and you get a credit with each month to purchase an audiobook of your choice. When you cancel your subscription, you get to keep all your previously purchased books which you can access across devices from Mac, Windows, Android and iOS and they all stay synced up with one another. If this all sounds like something you might be interested in, hop over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can find a special offer. Sign up for a free month including your first credit to purchase an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the month you decide that it's not for you, you can cancel, not pay a penny, and you get to keep the audiobook from your trial, so it's literally a win-win. Thanks very much for suffering through my spiel, and once again, if it does appeal, head over to audible.com forward slash darkhistories, or you can find the link on the support page of darkhistories.com. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? course you can hit that 30 second skip button and that's all cool but a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the dark histories patron you get a bunch of different benefits for doing so including ad free shows access to early release episodes the full back catalog of bonus episodes including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content you get access to all my research notes for each episode and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sell a listen. Let's get back to the show. So, Constance Kent, murderer. Do we believe it? I suppose that's the biggest question, isn't it? I do think she definitely killed him, but I don't think it was perhaps in the way that it was all detailed in the confessions. And I definitely don't think she did it by herself. So one of the books, which was excellent, by the way, is The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher by Kate Summerscale. And I recommend, if you're interested in this case, if you found this story interesting, I recommend you pick up that book. It, it tells the story, you know, more or less as I've told it, but it's it, it flows in a really easy way. You can smash it out in a couple of days. It's it's a really, you know, it's a really kind of page turnery kind of book. Yeah, it's a fascinating book, so I recommend grabbing that. But towards the end, she insinuates fairly heavily. I mean, I would go as far as saying she more or less says it outright that Constance confessed in order to protect her brother, who she knew was going to suffer for the rest of his life, basically, unless she confessed. And her brother was going to turn 21 a month after her confession. And at 21, he was going to become eligible for his inheritance from his mother's death. And I think she knew that, basically, if she confessed at that point, her brother was kind of still able to go on and have a good life. And that is Kate Summerscale's kind of crux, I think. Um, I think that's the crux of her kind of conclusions, is that 
Constance Kent therefore came out and said it was all me um, because she wanted her brother to go on and live a good life. And I can certainly see that because one of the first things that I noticed when I read her confession was how much she seemed to protest that it was only her and that no one else knew about it. You know, she said twice, well, she said several times, at least a handful of times that it was only her and she really wanted it to be known that it was only her and no one else and you could say that a level of that is just her wanting to make sure that her family weren't caught up in it you know that she wanted to get it all out as clear as possible and you know it was me don't blame anyone else it was just me you could say that she was just kind of doubling down on that and making sure that people were aware or you could read it another way and say that she was kind of taking one for the team and that, I think, is much more likely. I think that he, William, that is to say, probably had quite a lot to do with it. I don't think she did the murder by herself. I don't think she did it with her father's razor either. Or at least I don't think she stabbed his chest with the razor because, I, you know, you could potentially have cut the throat with a razor I'm going to say but I don't think you could cause a deep stab wound in someone's chest with a razor that doesn't really make a great deal of sense to me and and there are a lot of things about her confession which don't quite add up but would add up if she didn't do them and she had an accomplice so I believe that William was probably her accomplice and if not an accomplice I definitely think that he knew about it if just by chance she did manage to do it all by herself. I definitely think that he would have known about it because I think they were those two were very close, being the fact that they were so close in age. They were both from the first marriage and they both kind of felt a little bit aggrieved by the second marriage. There's an interesting fact that, that the, all the children from the first marriage slept in the third floor with the servants, you know, on the same floor as the servants, whilst there were spare rooms on the second floor but the only one children that slept on the second floor were from the second marriage. And that's kind of, it's a very good visual metaphor to see how there was a kind of hierarchy in the house of children. And, and I, I do believe that she was probably treated poorly. And that sort of, yeah, would lead you to believe that they were very, very close, her and William. And the fact that, she, you know, she wanted to run away, it was all her idea and she kind of taught William to come with her. That story is quite interesting and it shows a lot how they were, I think they were probably quite close. So I definitely think that if he didn't have any part in it, which I don't believe, he at least knew about it. And that, of course, leads you to question who else knew about it in the house and who was covering up. So you can say that William possibly knew about it, like like very possibly knew about it. You could probably say that Samuel knew about it or would have had suspicions. And if Samuel and William knew about it, You'd also possibly have to question that the two older daughters possibly knew about it as well. And if all of those knew about it, surely Mrs. Kent knew about it, the mother-in-law. She may not have. I think she's possibly one of the only ones that maybe didn't. I think potentially the cook and the housemaid didn't know about it, Cox and Kerslake. But I think Goff probably knew about it. Because... One of the things you find with these Victorian cases, and you see it time and time and time again, is how 
the servants of the house are sort of forgotten about and almost they're part of the furniture and the residents of the house tend to sort of overlook their presence and let themselves slip far too often and you see it over and over again that that often the most kind of crucial testimonies are either given by the servants or the servants are suspected of knowing a lot more than they're letting on and it's like you know if the servants are just a little bit observant then they can generally kind of pick up on an awful lot of information i mean at the end of the day they're living in the house with these people and and they say like it only takes a little bit of observation on on behalf of the servants who are kind of treated in a way as if they're not there yeah they used to be treated as if they're ghosts in the family you know they they they're kind of not really present and because of that they're kind of often I say can pick up on a lot more than 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 others how much of the house really did know about it so when she confessed samuel apparently found out by a, a newspaper she hadn't warned him so her, she hadn't warned her dad that she was going to confess and he found out himself when he read of her arrest in the newspaper and he was apparently sort of startled by the whole thing but he didn't seem particularly upset and he visited her in prison and he arranged for all of the defense and things like that yes she was his daughter but would you not question it if he knew nothing about it and it was really really a true shock to him would he have taken it so in his stride i don't know it feels to me slightly off like when I was reading the the documents and stuff about that, I just and the, the the press reports, I just found it slightly off how he took it. He seemed to take it a little too easily and just get on with the practicalities of what he had to do for arranging the defence and such and going to visit her and things like that. I found that quite suspicious. Ultimately, I suppose the big questions are if she did it at all, and if she did do it, did she have any accomplices, and if she did or didn't have any accomplices, whether or not that be the case, who actually knew about it? They're the kind of big questions, I guess. I'm not really sure on either of them. So I believe that William at least knew about it, but I think possibly an awful lot more of that family knew. I believe some of the servants probably knew about it or possibly at least had their suspicions. I don't think she did it by herself. I think William helped, but I do think she did it. I do think there are elements of the handing herself in that were just too too well detailed. I think she definitely did it. And I definitely kind of believe her test, her motive as well. I believe her motive was true. I don't think she made any of that up. And I think her motive is, is an interesting one, actually, because it kind of shows a typical teenager in its selfishness. Um, and she's always trying to pass the blame onto others. So in this case, she's, you know, trying to pass the blame onto her stepmom for essentially what her own failures passing the blame that she treated her own mum like a essentially really badly and she's passing that blame you know you would assume that there's probably quite a bit of guilt there after her mum died you know that she treated her mum in that way and then she's passing that kind of anger and blame of that guilt onto her stepmom so I, I do believe that her testimony was there and it, I do believe that it's quite typical of a kind of angry teenager. And, and it's also a testimony that you often see in murders and especially something you see in uh, school shootings. You tend to, I mean, I don't really get into like school shootings and stuff, but whenever you see the testimonies, and I'm not saying all of them, I'm not even claiming to be an expert on this, but I can think of at least two 
in recent memory where the shooter came out and said to similar testimonies how they were kind of angry at others and they were kind of passing the blame onto them for their own failures. You know, that, that kind of seemed like a, something that I can kind of remember. One, I, I don't actually remember the shooters, shootings, actually, so I'm not even going to say what they were. But I, I kind of remember that. So I do sort of believe her, her motive and I, I believe her confession. And I do think she did it, but I just don't think she did it. I don't think it's all quite as it seems. So that's more or less that. And we'll go through that uh, next week. We'll be doing a live stream and we'll kind of chat about it. And you can come on and chat about it. If you've got your own theories, come on and talk about it. I think it'll be a good one because I think, like I say, this case is a bit of a cracker in that it's sort of wrapped up, but it's not. Uh, so I think we'll have a lot to talk about. So yeah, if you want to come on and talk about it, you're more than welcome. It'll be on YouTube. If you've never been to a live stream before, now's definitely going to be the chance, you know, the time to do it. Come on to the YouTube and you either can participate in the chat or if you'd actually like to come on the stream itself, you're more than welcome and to come on and chat on the live stream. It's a free-for-all, basically. That's all, It's all run through Google Hangouts. All you got to do is come onto the live stream on YouTube click a link and you'll jump straight in. And that's going to take place at 10pm GMT. We'll be doing it English time this week to sort of try and spread it around a little and kind of split the time zones up a little bit. So yeah, it'll be 10pm GMT, which will be, I believe, 5pm EST and 2pm PST. Pacific Standard Time, I believe. So yeah, come along if you want to. Um, I'll post a lot more about that on social media as we approach it. So, you know, I, I'm just kind of giving you a heads up now, but the actual links and such will all be um, posted on social media. If you want to find out more, visit darkissues.com. All of our social media, as well as our Discord information is all on there, along with ways that you can support the show. Anyway, that's been that. This episode was an absolute ripper, I think. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, so hopefully see you all at the live stream because I think next week's going to be a really interesting chat. And if not, I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. And I believe we're coming up to our second anniversary. So there's going to be some pretty cool stuff coming. And there's some big kind of anniversary events coming up, which are not to do with the show, but sort of anniversary events that I'm going to be kind of theming episodes around. So yeah, look forward to them. I will see you all very soon say next week for the live stream two weeks if not i hope you have a great week have a great bank holiday if you're in england or is it the whole commonwealth i don't actually know and i'll see you all very soon take care sleep tight